today, Ryan and I are joined by Miriam Haddad, who is currently a candidate in the leadership race for the Green Party of Canada. We are hoping to get to know her better throughout this episode and really looking forward to chatting with her today um, and talking about left politics in the Canadian landscape. So, hi, Miriam. How are you today? Can you just briefly introduce yourself and in your own words and uh, introduce yourself to the audience a bit? Yeah, so uh, hello, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Miriam Haddad. I'm 32 uh, years old. Uh, I'm born in Syria. Uh, I came uh, to Canada in 93 with my parents and my brother. And uh, for the past eight years, I've been uh, practicing immigration law and I'm specialized in refugee claims from the Middle East. Uh, I joined uh, the Green Party of Canada for the last elections. Um, I was encouraged by a, a fellow uh, green to to run uh, because I would be uh, I would have fun and I actually did I did have a lot of fun uh, I was disappointed with the results for sure but um, it was okay I went back to my regular job um, only to get approached again uh, by another fellow green uh, who who saw um, my skills and uh, the way I've been uh, presenting myself and um, and all the characteristics about my identity as um, something that, ha that would have, that would inspire Canadians uh, to vote for the Green Party of Canada. So this is uh, how I was, um, uh, why it came up to my, uh, in my mind for the first time to run for the leadership and to be the, uh, the replacement of, of Elizabeth May. And, uh, and yeah, I, I took that decision last uh, February and uh, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey so far, and um, yeah, uh, we are finishing. Um, well, the race is done in two days. Yeah, I am excited. Um, I'm excited to uh, to start uh, the new journey that we're, that we're going to be having. Um, uh, no matter what the results are, we, me, and my team are super proud of what we we have accomplished and how many people we were able to inspire into the movement uh, that we started. Thank you for sharing that with us. And um, we've observed like a kind of a different type of discourse online around progressive politics in Canada and definitely your uh, running and Dimitri's running has inspired a lot of, I would say, leftists, mm -hmm. young leftists to join. Mm -hmm. And I know it's been a busy and tiring campaign during COVID and that created complications. And you mentioned a little bit, but a bit more about uh, why the Green Party and your personal politics and how that informs like running for green instead of perhaps a different party or as a independent? Uh, well, why the green? Uh, it's because it was by pure coincidence, honestly. Uh, I, um, uh, the person uh, who encouraged me to, to, to run uh, during the last elections was actually a, a very close friend of mine and we worked together on asylum cases. Uh, he works as an interpreter. His name is Ralph Shane and he's the president of the Quebec Wing of the Green Party of Canada. So I looked at the platform uh, and uh, looked at the green values and um, I saw myself in that party. So it, because it, in a certain way, it, it, um, um, it, it was close for my values, I just decided to run uh, with them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, um, I'm running as, a, as an eco-socialist. Well, I started, well, I started as a socialist and it's with the evolution. Um, I understood what, like, what it was about. Um, uh, what are uh, uh, what eco socialists stand for? And um, I believe this party, uh, the Green Party of Canada, is um, the most progressive on, on most issues. 
but unfortunately, in the past, um, certain things, certain things, and decisions were taken by the establishment for us to be perceived by the population and have a messaging that is quite centrist, uh, just like most of the parties. Um, me and Dimitri uh, have been talking a lot. Uh, we want to bring the conversation to the left in Canadian politics. Uh, and we're super proud of what we, we've done uh, so far, uh, honestly. There's a huge gap. A lot of people uh, don't feel that there's any kind of representation. Uh, there's no representation for leftists. Uh, some MPs from the, of the NDP, uh, even, even Paul Manley uh, is quite um, a leftist. Uh, but if um, and there's certain MPs that are also uh, and that identify themselves as socialists, but um, can we say that the NDP is a is a left wing party? Uh, I wouldn't be able to say that. Um, I don't think anyone can say that. And we've seen uh, for the past uh, few decades. Um, well, maybe not a few decades, maybe a bit less, but it's been a little while that we see all the political parties running uh, towards the, uh, the center-right instead of having a, a, a run, uh, a race towards the left. And I think by having a, uh, an, somebody that identifies as an eco-socialist, as the leader of the Green Party of Canada, uh, great things can be done um, in Canadian politics. Thank you. So... As outsiders, we've seen a lot of updates from your campaign. We saw you go through a disqualification and a reinstatement just before voting started. And now voting is underway and we're waiting for the results in a few weeks. So can you tell us what that process has been like for you and give us an update on your campaign? Uh, honestly, it was, uh, it was extremely stressful um, and an unjust and unfounded um, I was um, expelled uh, by the Leadership Contest Authority uh, on a matter of seconds. They just decided to um, kick me out of the race uh, without having a possibility to even respond to whatever criticism uh, and the reasons why I was expelled um, were kind of, uh, um, it was unfounded. I did not um, endorse another uh, political or provincial party uh, that was actually um, the BC eco-socialists. Um, what I wanted from the BC Greens is only to talk about uh, leftist policies like a Green New Deal, uh, defunding the police and, and land back policies. That's all I was talking about. So it's, um, I've been very outspoken to, throughout the race. Um, I, I actually um, criticized the party uh, for not implementing a, a resolution that was voted by the federal council um, to make the um, a free youth membership um, for all the young greens, so everybody that is between 14 and 29 can get could could have um, gotten a, a a membership for this leadership race. They decided not to implement this and to wait for after the leadership race. In my perspective, and for anybody who has common sense, it does not make any kind of sense when you have a leadership race. It's the perfect opportunity to to attract a lot of new members into the party. Uh, and with candidates like me and Amita, it's like the perfect uh, opportunity for the party to grow, right? But um, I realized um, uh, that this, uh, the party and its establishment, I'm not criticizing the members, you know. Uh, the members believe, have uh, like their values align with mine. Um, they believe that it's possible to, to make this party truly grassroots. Uh, and um, uh, the establishment wants the status quo. Like, that's the reality of it. 
Um, they don't want to have an eco-socialist as a leader. They don't want uh, a young person as a leader either. Um, and I've realized that if they if they took this this think about it, what kind of party decides to kick out a 32 year old lesbian of color out of the leadership race on like a spare moment? So you. So the Green Party of Canada on the outside, not so much anymore after what happened, but on the outside shows that, oh, we have the green values, uh, we stand up for them. But on the uh, inside, it is, um, the right term would be, and I've been, I'm taking a lot of notes, that's my new thing. It's, it's hideous from the inside. Like I, and I've been exposed uh, and this, like no matter how much um, uh, strength I demonstrate uh, during debates and uh, during interviews, uh, no matter uh, any person that would be uh, exposed to certain such things and such an injustice uh, feels um, um, that this party is not a, a safe space for them. So, um, uh, but I know that it's possible to be better. The Green Party must be better, uh, but it needs to be uh, reformed, rebuilt. Um, and I've been talking about this um, a lot. Now we have another problem, just to let you know. And I know I'm talking a lot about this, but it's so, it's it just happened yesterday, you know, like it hasn't been that long. We're having another problem right now. Like there's a lot of our supporters that are reaching out to us saying that they haven't got, uh, they didn't get the, the, uh, the ballot Uh, the email to be able to vote. Oh, wow. Uh, so I don't know if you've heard about this or you've been following this, but that's what we've been seeing. And there's just no explanation whatsoever. How come certain people are not receiving? How come some of our supporters are not receiving their ballot to be able to vote? And we're like two days away from the, from the end of this leadership race. So how fair is it? Um, how democratic was this process? Um, But for sure, there must be an investigation that must absolutely happen um, about a bunch of things that are ongoing within inside the party. There is certainly a weaponization of bureaucracy uh, that is ongoing also. Uh, when they decide to push forward certain complaints that are unfounded, uh, when they decide to put on the side complaints that are founded, Um, it makes you question a lot of things about the, the values of the party. And it's not um, it's the establishment again, it's not the membership, because I do, I really, really respect our grassroots that stood up really and uh, sent emails and called the party to, to, to scream injustice and, and, uh, uh, and to point out that it was very undemocratic. Thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate your honesty and distinction between establishment and membership, which is um, something I wish more people who are in politics would do, because obviously just common sense, uh, you're fighting for your con like constituents and the people, not like a big kind of bigger party. But um, you've also done this thing that I thought was really novel and different, which is Um, you're part of a group uh, that is proposing a one-time alliance with NDP ridings with, by combining support to result in overall more seats for NDPs and Greens. So the reason like, I would say that this is considered a radical idea is because parties do not traditionally merge support in this way to build a larger left in Canada. And so I would like love to hear more about that. And I think our audience would love to hear more about like what prompted you to do this, but also how you see it happening. And do you think it's feasible and tenable? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the one-time Alliance for Democratic Reform is a, an organization that was founded by a bunch of nonpartisan uh, folks. 
some of them are involved with, uh, well, the president of Fair Vote, for example, is, uh, is one of the founding members. Um, and I heard of them um, after I got this very bad grade from Fair Vote. Uh, I, I had a, I think a C, I believe. And I was explained it's because my uh, my website doesn't mention anything about the um, about the uh, my position on proportional representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look at look at what I'm doing right now. You know, like I'm actually talking out loud for them, and like I that's how um, this came up to me for the first time when I spoke to Real Laverne, uh, that I, I admire his work. So um, basically, uh, they uh, took uh, some statistics and made an analysis that demonstrates that if the Greens uh, take about 50 uh, writings uh, and uh, the NDP another 50, and they would collaborate not to jeopardize the chances uh, on, on each side, uh, the candidates would, would run under the um, uh, one-time alliance for democratic reform. Um, and uh, But they would keep their, of course, they would remain Greens and NDPers. It's not a merger. It's really just a cooperation for one election uh, to get things passed in Parliament because we absolutely need to become stronger uh, and more influential in the House of Commons. Uh, you know very well, we, we are, I believe, from the same um, generation. Maybe I'm older. Uh, it's a possibility, a, a big possibility that I am. No, no, we're within the same, we're within like, all of us are within five-ish, six, seven years, five, seven years, yeah. We're like, um, um, you know, like the millennials and Zoomers are, are quite, um, we, we're going to be living the same things, you know, uh, we're going to be, we have a stake in the game, like we're going to be living uh, the climate crisis if nothing changes and if our politicians don't show uh, political courage. So uh, there are things uh, that we must absolutely fight for. First of all is an electoral reform. We absolutely need a proportional representation to make our democracy better. We need to fight uh, against inequalities, and we need to fight uh, climate change. So these are uh, three critical fights that we must um, uh, do. And our current politicians, we know very well that they're representing the few instead of the many. Um, And we absolutely need to elect as many progressive MPs as possible. So it's just for us and for me, it's it's a question of survival. You know, Um, it's not about party line. It should be about survival. It's, it should be about the people and the people that we represent. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so um, uh, the only place, and look at it, and, and you'll understand why the NDP and the Greens have never collaborated in the past, is that the only place where there's animosity between both parties uh, and that they are literally fighting for the same seat um, and have chances of succeeding each of the, each of the parties, it's on Vancouver Island. Where are two out of three of our MPs are, their writings are on Vancouver Island. So then you understand why, um, in a certain way, I don't know, the establishment got a bit um, annoyed with the fact that I, I'm bringing forward certain, I'm talking about the one-time alliance. Um, it's the membership that will decide. You know, at the end, it's the membership that will decide. But is the membership all located on BC, uh, on, uh, in BC and on Vancouver Island? Uh, not anymore. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's a question of democracy at the end. So they wouldn't be, uh, these three writings on Vancouver Island w- will not be uh, counted within, within the, the 50 writings for each party. So um, therefore, there wouldn't be any problems. And also the 50 writings uh, where the Greens uh, would run, 
um, the MVP would never be able to actually win them and vice versa. So we wouldn't even be on, on uh, in competition. Like we would actually be a competition to the liberals. And also a lot of people will be encouraged to vote for, for this uh, one-time alliance. Uh, they won't have the fear, oh, well, I absolutely need to vote for the liberals to make sure that we don't get a conservative MP elected in our writing. This is, you know... Uh, and, and first past the post system, like this is the best, this is our best shot right now to, to make some uh, um, radical change and radical change is important. You mentioned one of the main reasons for the one-time alliance is climate change. And I want to talk about some specifics about the environment. And so can you explain to us what environmental policies you would push for you know, we're always thinking about the difference between climate justice and environmental issues, which we think is an important distinction. Mm -hmm. And so also in the Canadian context, what does a transition to green jobs look like in a country whose economy is so dependent on resource extraction? Um, and as party leader, how would you go about that? Um, first of all, um, so we've been talking a lot during this campaign about a Green New Deal, which is um, uh, a set of policies to tackle climate change, while well, at the core we would have decolonization and social justice. Um, you mentioned, Ryan, a distinction uh, between social justice and climate justice, but I believe they are uh, intertwined. Um, the reality is, is that the climate and ecological crisis is the biggest social justice issue of our time. We see when during crises that the most affected are the marginalized groups. We saw during this pandemic, for example, that in Montreal, let's say, uh, it's in, um, in the neighborhoods where the level of poverty is the highest, where we, we saw the most deaths. So uh, this shows uh, to what extent is most of the time marginalized groups that are at the forefront of any crisis. Uh, and it is accurate also for, the, for climate change. Um, also, we need everybody on board you know, like somebody who is surviving, barely surviving to have food on the table and a roof over, over, over their head won't have, will probably care about the future of their children on this planet, but won't have necessarily the capacity to, to, to think about it, you know, and to actually contribute to fighting uh, this, uh, this climate change and the, and the crisis itself. So um, for sure, we need to make sure that everybody lives in dignity. Uh, in transitioning our economy out um, of fossil fuels, we need to make sure that nobody's left behind. And good thing that you're talking about jobs. The reality is that there's going to be about 900,000 jobs that would be uh, directly and indirectly affected, affected by phasing out fossil fuels. Um, the workers, we need to become the champions of the workers. We need to make sure that there's something that is waiting for them while transitioning. And the best uh, solution, and it's something we've been talking a lot about uh, during this campaign, is a federal jobs guarantee uh, that would be implemented hand in hand with a guaranteed livable income. Uh, this is, um, and it's, it's jobs for the fossil fuel workers, yes, but it's jobs, federal jobs for everybody that wants a job. And now coming out of this pandemic, if the private sector is not capable of creating jobs, the government must take over. It's just a question of survival. We, we cannot keep on going like this. And the more we leave people behind, okay, the more we don't address the, the system of in, this inequal um, economical system that we're in, 
the more uh, the more xenophobia and radicalism that we're going to be seeing uh, happening inside the country. I see it related one to another. So it's um, for a person like me, um, who is a person of color, um, I'm part of the, the, the LGBTQI community. Um, uh, it's, I cannot let it happen. We cannot let it happen. We must fight xenophobia with the same kind of populism, but in a positive, positive populism exists. And there's nobody that represents it at the moment in Canadian politics. And the only way that we're going to be uh, facing um, uh, xenophobia, uh, xenophobic governments, and um, uh, this kinds of hatred towards us is if we fight it with something, a messaging uh, that uh, is hopeful uh, and that will inspire people. Uh, I think Canada, in Canada, we're in the perfect position where it's something that we can accomplish, but we must uh, fight for the most marginalized. And the Green Party has this job, uh, which we didn't in the past. I feel like by having a balanced budget and, and budget and being fiscally conservatives, um, it, just, it just does not make any kind of sense that, oh, we're going to be addressing climate change. We are the most credible on the climate crisis. What we're not going to be actually fighting against inequalities at the same time. It does not make sense. And that's why eco-socialism is um, at the core of, of our policies. Um, now, there's a lot of things that must be changed, and it's the membership that will be deciding. I'm coming back a lot on the membership, you know, and it's there's a reason why I did not come out with a full platform. Uh, first of all, when you come out with a platform, um, everybody loves destroying it, okay? That's the first part. The second part is um, it's, not the, it's not the leader that, um, that actually uh, builds policies. It's the membership. It's the grassroots of the party that will decide. And also a Green New Deal will be built by many actors. It's not just the Green Party of Canada that will, will come up with it. It's going to be specialists, indigenous communities, if they want to participate. Uh, in building this this plan, a bold plan that is, that would be fair for everybody, and we're going to be building it hand in hand as equals. Um, we were we're going to be dismantling colonialism and in giving them more, giving them sovereignty at the end, um, sovereignty of their governance. And we need like there's many there's many uh, aspects to the Green New Deal. We're going to be building it also with municipalities and. Provinces and uh, unions because they know where jobs are needed. Um, so uh, there's that, and there's also marginalized groups. I talk a lot now, and when I'm asked a question, I'm becoming a real politician. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, it's like my my answers are becoming super long. Um, it means I'm, I'm getting used to it now. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You were answering some stuff that we had like later on in the list. So we're like, we're, we're like cutting questions in our doc. So perfect. Thank you. You're addressing so much. But um, when Ryan and I put out uh, a call saying like, we're really excited, we're going to get to interview Miriam. Does anybody have any questions they want to submit? Because we have a little bit of like a community of followers in Toronto who listen to this. And we've interviewed Leah Gazan. We're having Nikki Ashton on. Uh, Don Davies, Matthew Green. So people, when we put out your name, had some questions specifically for you. So I'm going to thank the audience for submitting um, kind of this topic to cover. But um, they wanted, they were curious about your uh, your stances on foreign policy specifically, but more curious about 
as somebody who could be a potential leader of the Green Party or will stay involved with the Green Party after this race. I saw that if Dimitri wins, you'll also be very supportive of him. Um, yes. We've we've read in, in that you believe in just foreign policy, and we'd love to hear um, you explain about that and as well as um, how to do that when the government just feels so unjust to some of us who are young, when we see the foreign interventions happening in countries that some of us are from. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, look at uh, from which country I come from, you know, and um, the the asylum claimants that I've been representing uh, for the past eight years. Since I could say for the since summer 2017, we saw this rush of refugee claimants coming, uh, passing through Roxanne Road. Um, like I have been representing a lot of uh, status Palestinians coming from all over the Middle East, not only uh, from the Gaza Strip or, or from the West Bank, uh, but also uh, people that um, are stateless Palestinians and have been living uh, for um, generations in the Gulf countries. Uh, so it's um, or in Lebanon and they like they resettled so many times. So a lot of stateless Palestinians, Syrians and Yemenis now. Um, uh, these are the three countries where I, I represent uh, most of my uh, clients come from these countries. And um, uh, so, yeah, like I I've seen things that are just terrible, terrible happening. And and the Western world has a big, big role uh, in uh, in impacting these um, foreign countries. Like, um, first of all, Canada, uh, Canada's foreign um, policy should be independent completely from the US and from the political interests uh, of our neighbor. Um, uh, and uh, that's that has been ongoing for like many years, not only um, since Trump uh, took power in that country. I mean, uh, uh, we saw uh, the Arab Spring rising uh, all over and the intervention of, of foreign states in, in countries uh, where there was an Arab Spring uh, while Obama was in uh, was in power. So. Um, also, we, we we're going to have to to um, cease all financial and uh, diplomatic support to arm uh, exporters. We can't be selling, um, we can't be building up uh, weapons in Canada and exporting them to Saudi Arabia where we're going to be used against their own civilians and in Yemen. And it comes to that, it's like blood on our hands. You know, like Canadians, do Canadians want to be part of this? Do Canadians want to be uh, part of the ecocide that will happen in the future if, if, if climate change is not addressed? Um, so our part in this climate uh, crisis is also um, a perpetuation of, uh, of colonialism and imperialism, uh, because this country in here, we're not going to be affected as much as others, but um, we're going to have blood on our hands because we're one of the biggest emitter and exporter of uh, greenhouse gases. So um, think by just addressing climate change, this is our way also to have a just foreign policy. Um, this is like few of the, the things that can be changed. There's also um, Canada, we, we, we must cut ties with the interest of mining uh, interest. So um, yeah, it's like, it's, it's not normal that we're affecting indigenous communities, not only in our own country, but in foreign countries too. Um, this is also a perpetu if we want to remove certain governments that were voted uh, democratically elected by indigenous uh, people and, and indigenous governments, this is also um, uh, colonialism. 
done by Canada. So it's um, so we need to 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 have also um, if we want to be uh, an example to follow, we must also make sure that um, even if the certain states are considered our friends and that we have economical ties to them. Uh, if there, there's human rights abuse in these countries, we must absolutely put uh, uh, diplomatic and economical sanctions on these countries. It is not fair for us to place economical sanctions on, on uh, Syria since the 70s and even before, and not putting any kind of sanctions on Israel, the neighbor country, um, when there's human rights abuse. Yeah. And... You know, you, you touched on this being um, an iteration of imperialism, and that's something that I think about a lot. I am also thinking about this human rights imperialism, which is a, a word that law students are giving to it, um, where we're being very selective about which countries that we um, that we target and then intervene in them in violation of international law. Mm -hmm. um, under the guise of exporting human rights. And that's a connection to, to decades, centuries prior when we would colonize countries under the guise of exporting um, civilization to them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so it's a continuation of that. But I wanted to get into some specifics about um, the United Nations, actually. So uh, Prime Minister Trudeau spent most of, much of his first term spending lots of time and money abroad trying to court countries for a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Conservatives critiqued this venture, but what do you think Canada's relationship with the United Nations and the Security Council in particular should be? Well, I think it's, uh, we're being um, uh, ousted or like um, we did not win this uh, Security Council seat because we're just not pioneers anymore. We're not an example to follow on our foreign policies. Um, there are many aspects to it, and I believe it's because of our, our weak stance on, on many foreign policy, uh, our intervention and uh, uh, our support of, of uh, the, uh, uh, what happened in Bolivia and Venezuela and in um, our stance on Israel, on uh, the fact that uh, there's not that many peacekeepers uh, that are actually uh, sent from, from, uh, from Canada. Um, les casques bleus. I'm not. I'm losing my uh, my English on that one. Yeah, the, the blue helmets. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there are uh, the fact that we're always following the interests of the U.S., who is like super. There's a like critical of the U.N. at the moment, and like we saw what happened with certain declarations of uh, of the President Trump about the U.N. Um, so it's just um. And it's not only the liberals. I mean, the same thing happened to the conservatives. Uh, so it's just a continuation. Everything that uh, the Trudeau government uh, promised uh, in 2015 um, on getting better <laughs> and on being uh, or having more socialist uh, policies. Well, I'm not going to say socialist because, like, it's they would never. He would socialism would never come out of his mouth. But. Um, um, uh, or the word socialism would never come out of his mouth. Um, it's, uh, it shows that we're just not this um, example to follow anymore. Uh, and I think uh, Canada can be an example to follow uh, with um, rethinking how our society uh, works and how our economy works uh, by implementing a Green New Deal, let's say. 
that leaves nobody behind and on our foreign policies also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's all about uh, political courage and, uh, and thinking about the many instead of the few. Um, we don't know how much, you know, like the oligarchy and the oligarchy and the oligopoly has so much uh, uh, pressure and um, um, I mean, like their interest is all about what's going on like uh, inside the government. Uh, I just feel like um, us Canadians are are always left behind, uh, and any any Canadians because and we're 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 constantly bombarded in uh, with um, uh, misconceptions on certain things, as if we don't deserve more than what the government is already offering us. Uh, but I think with this uh, pandemic, that this um, and I hope. That with the crisis that we, we lived, uh, we can see that governments can make a difference. If they were able to save our economy by opening the coffers of the, uh, the central bank and the government was able to put money in the hands of Canadians to save the economy, the same thing can be done if to save our future. Okay? Um, we can print money. It's possible. And, and, it's, and they talk about inflation and all sorts of things, but at the same time, um, and a debt and balancing the budget. How can people think about that? It's not like a household. <laughs> it's a, yeah. a country is not like a household. Maybe the provinces, the provinces is true. The debt is, is actually something important. But for uh, Canada, uh, who has uh, very low uh, interest uh, to pay, uh, can print a lot of money. The central bank can print a lot of money um, with a federal jobs guarantee, with a um, uh, guaranteed livable income that would be implemented, a wealth tax, uh, a Green New Deal, within a Green New Deal. Um, and of course, the universal uh, basic services uh, is also important because no matter what um, the government um, offers, and you know, a lot of people think and that the, the, the CERB is like, um, who just changed now and who's, get, who's changing into something else will be changing again into a guaranteed livable income, which is what Leah Gazan uh, has uh, introduced in a motion as an independent motion. This by itself uh, cannot be uh, implemented. We need to make sure uh, that our uh, social safety net is strong uh, and that requires other policies to be implemented to be implemented at the same time, like a federal jobs guarantee and, uh, um, and a better universal health care that, is, is, uh, that, that is actually universal because it's not at the moment. So um, the, also, the, the uh, how did I get here? We were talking about foreign affairs. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. No, it's good though. Um, we, I can actually, I, I want to pick up on something that you said um, just previously, but just to finish off on the, on the UN Security Council, like, you know, I, I don't think Canada deserved a seat this time. Um, no, I'm, I'm actually glad that Ireland got uh, one of the seats that Canada was, was going for. You know, despite being a small country, it showed itself to be an independent player internationally. It, it increased its contribution to the World Health Organization when Trump canceled, canceled their funding. Um, meanwhile, Canada has remained silent while the U.S. has undermined international institutions, international law, the international rule of law. So you mentioned this before, Canada needs to detach itself from the U.S., but how can Canada have an independent foreign policy that's not contingent on the U.S.? 
You know, I ask this because our economy is so tied up with the U.S.'s. And that's one of the main reasons I think the government is hesitant to act against the U.S.'s international interests. Uh, but at the same time, um, I feel like uh, the Trump government was the most of most of the time uh, more respectful of the countries that had a like um, had a powerful stance against him. He like, do you understand what I mean? Like you? Yeah, no, I see at that. At the same time, it's about doing the right thing, you know. Like it's about doing the right thing. It's I know our economy is very um, relies a lot uh, on the U.S we must become also independent economically and, and localize our economy much more. So it's a, we need to rethink our economy altogether, right? Um, so detaching ourselves from the interest of the U.S. means that we must also detach ourselves in a certain way economically. So attached, like, because we're too uh, dependent on them. Uh, and we saw uh, with this pandemic what uh, dependency can actually make. Uh, do you remember when uh, some masks were stolen by the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, they weren't going to give us those masks from 3M. Well, people are are forgetting certain things. Yeah, like like we we must ask ourselves which countries are actually our friends mm-hmm. and which ones are not. Uh, is um, the U.S. still our big brother who is protecting us from the uh, Soviet Union? Yeah. I do not know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Like it's it doesn't seem like it from uh, uh what kind of problems they created. Uh, we, we even got problems with other foreign countries because of the US positions on certain things like with China, for mm-hmm. example. So it's um we must ask, ask ourselves with who are our real friends and maybe um um have some unions or be uh um I don't know, having economical um, uh, agreements with that are fair, of course, for everybody um, uh, that will encourage local economies. OK, uh, but with countries um, in the Scandinavian countries, for example. Uh, so we need to look at their, the values of other countries and see with whom do we actually relate the most. Uh, I don't think we can relate to the U.S. at the moment. They have their own human rights abuse that they're actually committing right now. Mm-hmm. If we want to be true to ourselves, it's something unthinkable of any politicians to say that. And if we're talking about diplomatic and, and, uh, and uh, economical sanctions on, on all countries that commit human rights abuse, is the U.S. also uh, one of these countries? It's a question. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question, too. Um, and... So with the with foreign policy, which I'm so happy you spoke about at length, because it is something that kept coming up in our inbox. Um, ask Miriam about foreign policy. Ask Miriam about foreign policy because millennials and Zoomers care about foreign policy when they're voting for people or supporting parties and legislation. And so um, around the issue of foreign policy, uh, Palestinian self-determination and statehood is something that Canadian politicians and the government shield away from, presumably not to disturb the U.S. as well as other interests and lobbies in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, this week, we saw Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, on Friday uh, withdraw her participation from an event commemorating former Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, uh, she replied to one of the many tweets she received saying, hey there, this event and my involvement was presented to my team differently from how it is now being promoted. Um, and, and a lot of young people found that very genuine and authentic and refreshing to see a politician do that. Um, and now Ryan's going to talk a little bit more about the question we have, but we wanted to anchor this in kind of 
seeing that because we've um, seen that you identify as an, an eco-socialist, a socialist, and um, in a few interviews, we've seen um, you compared to like kind of the energy of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. And we've been trying to see like, can we get this energy um, here in Canada? So uh, Ryan will kind of expand on this, but we want to anchor it and how that's just a big deal for a politician to withdraw support from an event and openly online. It shows political courage. That's what political courage is. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you can speak like to answer this question, you can speak broadly about Palestinian rights and activism, but we've noticed, for example, students, um, it's, this issue is constantly debated on Canadian campuses and it's quite personal to me. I, so for example, in the last couple of days, the globe and the star have reported, um, a scandal at the university of Toronto law school, Mm -hmm. um, about rescinding the director, the rescinding the job offer of the director of its international human rights program after a donor, contacted the dean expressing concern over the candidate's scholarship on Israel and international law. Um, and so have you heard of this controversy? Do you have any thoughts as a lawyer about it or uh, just as somebody who cares about these issues generally? Well, it's, uh, I mean, like, it's it's pretty serious what was done, you know? Like, it's, um, uh, if it is for that reason, like, that a donor actually uh, stood up and decided to, like, um, make this uh, happen uh well it's uh it's a serious harm for just uh freedom of speech and uh, uh academic uh, freedom like it's it's actually uh jeopardizing our um jeopardizing our democracy like that's what this is how i see it like it's it's the integrity uh, that also the the reputation of the university uh that is affected by such events um we could see the same kind of thing happen to certain candidates um, at the beginning of this leadership contest. Uh, I know they're not allowed to talk about it, but I can. So it's uh, um, it happened also to 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 a certain candidate we know very well that is also an eco socialist, and um, and it makes um, um, the party look bad. Uh, we we think about the integrity and the reputation of the Green Party of Canada at that point. And I think they demonstrated the same kind of actions uh, last week when they decided to expel me. Um, that it's about um, um, an infringement of the freedom of expression and um, a freedom of, of political expression, can you believe it? So, um, so yes, like I'm, uh, I think it's very dangerous. Uh, that such actions are, are taken within universities and such a very prestigious university like the University of Toronto. Yeah, on the on the question of freedom of expression, both Canada and Ontario, several states across the U.S. have passed legislation that condemns the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement mm-hmm. as being inherently anti-Semitic without engaging with the point of BDS nor Israel's you know, ongoing and frankly uncontested violation of international law. So how do you think this affects freedom of expression? And do you think there's any will to change these types of legislation? Well, for sure, there, there must be a will to change uh, such a... Uh, it's, it's definitely not what the people in Canada want. 
if they are they are like the reality is the population there's nothing nothing anti-semitic in, uh, in the bds movement we know that very well uh it's about uh, putting uh, economical uh, sanctions uh on uh, on israel for their actions that look like an apartheid it happened in uh, in south africa why can't it happen for uh, for Israel to actually get uh, to a peace, a real peace agreement, and to uh, just to stop to the human rights abuse? It's not a position. We're not taking position. We're not actually. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that we're with Hamas. You know what I mean? But it just uh, it's just a double standard. I very often see a double standard depending on which country um, we're actually talking against. And that must stop in, in Canadian politics. We we must be better than that. Thank you. And and thinking about um, the movement connection, so Turtle Island to Palestine is such a prominent theme that comes around in the left and left organizing. And we see Angela Davis's uh, book uh, also do that, those linkages in the abolition movement growing. And so thinking about Land Back, which you mentioned earlier, in 2019, the RCMP arrested a number of indigenous land defenders and allies at the um, Unostoan camp, which was set up in 2010 to block access to Wet'suwet'en territory. And we've seen the land back movement, and I've seen you also say uh, land back in your policies. And so land back has been described as an invaluable tool for understanding these issues from an anti-capitalist perspective. Um, and in our show notes, we're going to link the Whitehead Institute's uh, paper on it. But getting into Green Party policy, what would the mechanics of land back be mean when most land is provincial? And what how could the Green Party have control or input um, and indigenous people? Uh, that's why that's why it's so important to actually have a Green New Deal that is uh, built hand in hand with many actors. Um, so it's a bold plan uh, for our survival at the end. And um, I think um, a lot of um, systemic oppressions um, in the in Canada as a state will be addressed uh, with a this bold plan. So um, uh, we uh, absolutely need to, to face the fact that uh, uh, colonialism is still ongoing. Okay, um, reconciliation, a word that I, it, that is very liberal in my in my head. We are not on that path at all. Okay, um, and um, and it's a question of choice of governments to actually treat uh, indigenous communities and and support indigenous uh, governance and sovereignty of their lands and uh, and rivers and like we must actually we are on their land. That's the at the end of it. This is what it is. Um, Turtle Island um, is should not be used. Yeah, this is another thing. Uh, uh, ju- just even Turtle. Island as a uh, term is is something that is trendy uh, for for non-indigenous people. Yeah. So it's it's as small as this that co- what colonialism can actually uh, perpetuate, and we know that for us to 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 establish land back policies uh, and um, and destroy uh, dismantle colonialism, it means that we need to dis- to dismantle lots of other systemic uh, oppressions that happen. Uh, so patriarchism, racism, um, xenophobia, white supremacists. So everything must be dismantled for us to succeed in dismantling uh, colonialism. 
And um, one of the things um, that can be included in a Green New Deal is uh, defunding the police on the way to, to abolition, of course. And uh, we know uh, that it's, and when we talk about uh, to the mainstream, okay, mainstream media or people that look and, and watch uh, and read uh, mainstream media, uh, they hear abolition and they're like, oh, well, uh, uh, how are we going to have policing institutions and like what's going to happen with certain, I don't know, criminals that commit fraud, let's say. Um, we know very well that we can't build those uh, prisons and uh, and shut down all policing institutions tomorrow, uh, especially when they're just continuously um, used as a solution for any societal uh, issue. Right at the at the moment, but in it's a long term game. You know, it's it's we need to be committed uh, to societal uh, restructuration, and um, and but as I said, within a green new deal, we can have that. And yes, the RCMP. And you mentioned the, what the RCMP did um, is um, it was created um, and it was called the the Northwestern Mounted Police uh, initially. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, the, for our first prime minister, McDonald, uh, created it, and it was created to, dis- to displace indigenous people uh, from their land onto reserves, and the ones that weren't uh, cooperating uh, would actually be starved to death. So if, uh, uh, if at the foundation of the RCMP, uh, that's the reason why they were created, uh, and the RCMP continues carrying uh, violence uh, against indigenous people, uh, as well as other uh, marginalized groups like racialized, uh, poor people with uh, health, um, mental health issues. Um, so they, they are continuing violence against these groups of people, and that they, the RCMP is fundamentally uh, a punitive institution that is brutal. Well, for sure, where we, we absolutely need to abolish it. We need to defund it, first of all, reinvest and invest much more onto the communities that they need it the most and that are uh, living the consequences of, of systemic oppression and, um, um, and that are struggling with, uh, uh, with health and poverty and um, well-being uh, in general. Uh, so, um, so yes, the, the funding must stop. Uh, they must be disarmed and dismantled. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, we need to to increase the funds um, in these uh, communities so they can thrive. And this is how we're going to be addressing uh, systemic racism. It's not by putting a knee on the floor or screaming in Parliament on like a perceived or alleged racist uh, other MP. You know what I mean? Like um, that doesn't. I'm sorry, but Jagmeet Singh does not demonstrate courage by doing that. Why doesn't uh, the, uh, the the NDP talk about defunding the police yeah. huh? as a as a policy? Uh, this is what needs to be uh, talking. We need to talk about what the communities are asking for. Yeah. This is what they're talking. This is what they're yeah. asking for. Yeah. This is what scholars are asking for. How come the, our politicians are not doing that? Yeah. How come they're not doing their jobs and protecting the most marginalized in this country? So it's um. Yeah. So it's a subject that is very dear to me yeah. and that I'm going to be fighting for. Uh, I'm dedicated to dismantle colonialism and all uh, systemic uh, oppression that is ongoing in this country. Nashua and I also believe very strongly in that. And also defunding the police has huge support across the country. Of course. Um, it's, it's actually ridiculous that 
these policies are not being pursued. And I'll tell you why. I can tell you why. I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel like it's because the status quo and the privilege that certain people have in this country wants to be kept by these privileged people. Yeah. Like I've experienced the same kind of thing within our own party, you know, like within the party, everything that happens within the party in this kind of privilege is the same thing that happens on the, in the outside world. Right. Uh, and, um, and yes. So if privileged people will, certain privileged people, not, I don't want to be uh, saying that everybody's the same. Okay. Uh, but certain privileged people uh, that are uneducated about what it means defunding the police uh, will be fighting uh, for their privilege to remain. And we have to fight for the privilege to be ha happening. And everybody should have a privilege. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be privileged in this country, mm -hmm. not just specific people. On the question of people trying to hold on to privilege, I just want to circle back to the land back issue and one of the things that I worry about with land back is dealing with reactionary settler violence. Mm. You know, we see this happening right now in Mi'kma'ki, despite yeah. the Marshall decision being 21 years old, confirming Mi'kmaq treaty rights to fish. Settlers refuse to accept this. They respond with violence. They respond with hatred. And we can also see this in 1492 land back lane, which um, I think, you know, abolition is also a solution for. But how could you how would you deal with this settler violence and promote unity within the country if we were to do land back? Well, first of all, the government must uh, respect treaty rights. Like if our own governments are not respecting the treaty rights and are not are not showing it by example, I'm sure settlers, settler violence will happen. You know, like it's a question of, of demonstrating certain things by example. And the same thing can be like, we can talk about exactly the same thing about the police abolition and defunding the police. Um, the, I mean, the, the federal government does not have, uh, cannot control what happens in certain municipalities, but have a say on the RCMP. So why don't, don't we just show by example what we could actually accomplish and what we can do for the communities? And I believe that provinces and municipalities will follow. And it's the same kind of uh, mindset that must be done with uh, respecting treaty rights and respecting um, respecting indigenous sovereignty and governance. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's all I have to say. And uh, and should then also um, uh, the media must be mu much more outspoken. Traditional media, mm -hmm. because I know that we talk about the right things and independent medias and. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, we talk about the right thing on podcasts like the one I'm having with you guys, mm -hmm. uh, folks. Sorry, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and um, so it's um, uh, the traditional media should uh, educate people on uh, indigenous governance, on the impact of climate change everywhere in the world, and how people at the forefront of climate change are impacted by what we're doing in this country. No education is done, mm -hmm. you know. And if we're facing something that is um, ex uh, uh, existential, um, uh, put, put our, our life uh, and the population at risk and species all over the planet uh, at risk of, of extinction, just like something that is worse than, a, uh, than the Second World War, right? Um, like an ex existential threat, right? This is what's coming up if nothing is addressed. Yeah. 
Uh, how come we're not educating the population on that? I mean, CBC was used to talk about what was the what what, what the uh, Nazis were doing in Europe. Mm-hmm. How come we're not how we how come CBC is not exposing the population on what happens in the rest of the world and what people at the forefront of climate change are, are living? Oh, I find yeah, CBC like hyper focuses on America is bad. We have it good, which is intentional. It's intentional. Which is which is completely uh, mind blowing in my head. Like it just does not make any kind of sense. We're not far behind. They, they are just across the borders. It's very scary. I I I feel very scared about the kind of uh, hatred and xenophobia that can be on the rise in this country if the government does not address the climate uh, crisis and inequalities. And the more there's in, there's going to be inequalities the more xenophobia and hatred there will be in this country. We're not far behind. And um, as I said, um, things must change. Change. The status quo is just not something we can keep on going with. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I want to shift gears a little bit just to talk about um, the Green Party. Um, You know, it's hard to see what the Green Party stance on labor has been over history. And... You know, the NDP is seen as the Labour Party, the party that has all the the ins with the unions and stuff. So what changes do you think are necessary so that the Labour movement sees the Green Party as a legitimate place for solidarity? Uh, A Green New Deal. And we need to encourage uh, more unions, co-ops and also uh, federal jobs guarantee. They're going to be all jobs that will be unionized. We need to become the champions of workers. Like that's what's going on. Uh, and uh, I, I think um, even the, the NDP is losing this uh, title slowly but surely by having certain positions that are um, capitalistic and centrist instead of actually yeah, fighting for the workers. Uh, and there, there's also the, the position of the unions uh, or the NDP about the unions that are intertwined, that are linked with the fossil fuel industry. Uh, that's another issue that, we, uh, that the NDP has. Uh, but yes, it's and you're completely right. Um, uh, the Green Party of Canada was is not currently the champion of workers, uh, but we we can become the champion of workers, and uh, it's about bringing some ideas to people, showing up that we can actually create jobs for people, and something necessary at the moment coming out of the pandemic, but also for the future addressing the climate change, climate crisis. So um, so yeah. Within the Green New Deal, also it will be um, it will be built with the unions, also. So uh, by having such ties uh, with unions and experts and uh, and rethinking it all uh, to have um, uh, a society uh, that cares and an economy that cares for the planet and for the people, um, I think we can have a lot of people on board and we can become the champions of all Canadians and everybody living in this uh, in, on this land. Thank you. Uh, and as we as we wind down, we have just a few more questions. We swear. Um, so, uh, as as like a potential party leader or a member in the party who is very vocal um, on leftist issues, in past interviews and this interview, you've mentioned how millennials and Zoomers have we are we are a significant voting bloc with progressive values, and we could take over the Green Party. And so, how would you ensure and others ensure? How do they ensure that? Um, people who actually run for the Green Party actually embody progressive socialist values because that has not always been true. And what are better ways to communicate the party's better values? Because 
Um, as noted above, the NDP still has this like image of being the labor left party, uh, or noted above, noted previously, I'm acting like I'm writing an essay. Um, and so, and so, yeah, how, how do we, how do we do that for people who are getting excited a little bit about the Greens, but others who don't know yet? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, there is an excitement. I feel like this uh, leadership race brought some hope uh, to millennials and Zoomers and a lot of leftists uh, around this country. A lot of people uh, left uh, the NDP uh, specifically to join the Green Party of Canada because they saw this as a huge opportunity, right? Uh, but it's about our communications and it's about inspiring people. And uh, for the next uh, campaigns, we must be uh, we must have a diverse slate of candidates. Um, that will get the support needed to get elected in winnable ridings also. Maybe one of the 50 ridings that were, are selected within that one-time alliance. I usually project on the future things that are positive and they end up happening. So this is the, my mind, the kind of mindset uh, I'm in. Uh, but yes, um, uh, our messaging in the past was never addressed directly to the, to the millennials and Zoomers. Uh, it was addressed to I do not know who. Uh, people that read scholars. Um, so, and uh, we were perceived as a one issue party. If we're able to make people understand that we are a party that is much more than only based on the environment, even though, yes, as I said, the climate crisis is the biggest social justice issue of our time. And the way we're, we're building um, uh, society in the future must well, at the core of it, uh, yes, we were addressing inequalities, uh, but also the climate crisis can only be um, fought uh, by addressing inequalities. So if we're able to, in our messaging, getting across that we're not a one-issue party, I think we can have a lot of people on board. That's why I'm talking about nationalizing an affordable internet. This is why uh, during this race, I've been talking about a federal jobs guarantee. Uh, and this is why I'm talking about phasing out fossil fuels by 2030, which is what uh, scientists and grassroots movements around the world are asking for from the governments. They're not asking for phasing out by 2040 or by 2050, which gives us significantly less chances of actually succeeding at fighting climate change. I believe in survival. We need to give ourselves 100% chance of succeeding. Uh, it's an ex existential threat uh, to our to our future, millennials and Zoomers, we are um, the Green Party of Canada um, uh, could have natural allies in uh, millennials and Zoomers, uh, but was unable to inspire them. That's why uh, we weren't able to get to more than six percent of the vote during the last uh, during the last election. So, uh, and that means uh, that uh, these 1.5 million people in the streets that were demonstrating. Last fall, um, in the global climate uh, march, um, it means that only six percent of them voted for us. So, so it's uh, it makes sense uh, that the Green Party should uh, reshape, but that requires rebranding and becoming much more inspiring. Thank you. And then um, I, I'm also very interested in understanding. Um, how you feel about socialism as a term in the political discourse, because we've heard you talk about socialism and you don't hide that and neither do a f only a few other politicians, I would say in Canada. And so um, how, how does the choice in, of the word socialism fit in this landscape of Canada that's arguably anti-communist? 
Canada's very like scared and averse, like Canadian politics. I wouldn't say the Canadian people because I do know communists or people who are more willing to uptake that. Um, just as like a fellow millennial who's seeing that as well, I'm sure. Well, you know, and I'm going to admit this to you, um, before uh, launching our campaign on the 22nd of May uh, and from February, we did talk to a uh, PR com- comms company uh, and question them on like what kind of strategy and our messaging should we go for. And at the beginning, they were saying, oh, we must say progressive. We may mu-, even though they are socialists like, and communists working for that comes company. So mm-hmm. it's uh, um, uh, that it might not be perceived very well by the Canadian population. But afterwards, um, um, afterwards, um, like it was just it, our instinct, uh, and especially with the pandemic and the crisis that happened and how uh, socialist policies were implemented by the government. So it's so for us, it was just uh, we, we had to be honest with ourselves and uh, our values. Also, there are other polls that were done uh, in the past uh, by Forum, if I'm not mistaken, uh, last summer. So summer 2019, before the pandemic. And about 58 percent of the, the, the people that uh, went through the poll uh, said that socialism is not, they're very comfortable with that economic system. So 58% is quite significant. And it's the most, uh, the people that are the most uh, comfortable with it are uh, people between 18 and 44, women, uh, people uh, that earn between uh, the very educated, the educated people, people that earn between 40 and 80,000 a year, uh, and people living in the Maritimes. No. So, um, uh, it's not that, uh, big of a deal. Like, I don't see it as something, uh, that is bad. And, um, and eco-socialism, it's pretty much like a merge between socialism and environmentalism, you know, and that, um, we perceive, we view, uh, we view socialism as the best way to fight, uh, climate change. I've been repeating it many times that it's the biggest social justice issue of our time. So this is what's part of our uh, values. And it was a transition for me. Um, so um, uh, like, I, I don't think I was like thinking while walking or like while working as an immigration lawyer, uh, oh, I am a socialist. And I, this is like the, the kind of, this is, the, uh, this is where I am on the political spectrum. You know what I mean? Like I know for who I voted for in the past and for who I vote for on the provincial level and on, in the municipal level, um, like Quebec Solidaire is a socialist party. Uh, so, so yes, okay, this is where my, I position myself. Uh, but just work, working with the most marginalized of, of our society is for me uh, uh, fighting for social justice. So, um, uh, and I think it's important that we are clear for what, on what we stand for. Uh, it's important that the leader of the Green Party of Canada shows uh, its true colors. We cannot be perceived anymore as conservatives on bikes. <laughs> yeah, conservatives who recycle. That's what it means. Yeah, no, and that's, that's really helpful. Um, I want to just pick up on... Quebec Solidaire, actually. Mm-hmm. And if you can talk a bit about that party and, and what it means to you and how we can export that those values to the rest of the country, because we don't have anything like that in the rest of the country. And so whether that's, you know, turning the the Green Party into that voice nationally, but even provincially and in other provinces, 
how do you think we can um, permeate this? Uh, well, they're very credible on the climate crisis. Uh, they are uh, independentists, but it's not at the core of the, all their policies. Uh, most of their members, um, there's other issues that are much more important, like addressing inequalities and, and, and the climate crisis. It's a very young party. Um, most of the membership is very young. Uh, it's a grassroots, a real, a true grassroots party also. Uh, which um, the Green Party of Canada, they love saying that they're grassroots, but truthfully, it's not implemented like correctly at all, um, which I want to give back. I really want to empower the members. Uh, we should go back to our roots. Um, they have a co-leadership -co also uh, with um, uh, Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois, who is super young and um, uh, inspiring and was, uh, uh, I believe, uh, the president of the um, student, um, the student union uh, during the, uh, the, um, the demonstrations that happened against the ri rising the, uh, the fees, the oh, education yes. yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that happened in, back in 2011, I believe. Uh, and um, so, uh, so co-leadership, um, they ran, uh, they ran their, their elections during the last election and the comms company that I actually like that we spoke to are the comms company of, of Quebec Solidaire. Like these are the ones that we, we worked with during this, the, at the beginning of this, uh, of this campaign. Um, they ran, uh, their election on, uh, their uh, messaging that is addressed to young people. They know that the people around that relate to this messaging will be voting for them no matter what, okay? Uh, but they wanted to inspire and attract people to actually vote for them. And this is why they had electoral uh, success uh, during the last election on a first-past-the-post electoral system. So we need to look at, um, we need to look, uh, at uh, parties like that um, to, to elect more Green MPs in the future. Uh, we don't. We shouldn't look at other green parties around the world that have proportional representation, like in Germany or New Zealand. It's not the proper way to to, to run elections. We, we are under a first past the post system, so we should look at examples uh, that um, where there was uh, electoral uh, success. There's also the Scottish National Party uh, that ran that went from like few MPs to over fifty um, in Westminster. So it's, uh, so it's, you, we have to look at um, um, countries where they have a first-past-the-post electoral system for us to have success in the future. Uh, and yeah, they are um, social democrats also. Uh, it's within their constitution. Now, we don't have uh, this positioning um, uh, like Greens, um, and that's why like, they say that we had a centrist slogan that... Um, made everybody like did not know what we were standing for right uh it's because a lot of for a lot of greens um they don't believe in the political spectrum but the problem is folks is that for everybody for canadian canada and canadians people relate to the political spectrum they want to know what's our position so um uh it's important to uh, for the greens to get out of their books and start having a messaging to the people so if we want to be the party of the people, we need to address our messaging and, and stand up for the people. So that's how I see it. And um, I spoke a bit earlier about um, positive populism. 
uh, I think it's it's uh, it's our way uh, that we're going to be able to have uh, uh, political uh, successes in the, in, for, for the next elections. Um, and um, I, I think I'm the perfect candidate for that. Uh, even the fact that my level of English is not as strong as my level in French will make it easier for me or more and understandable to most Canadians, you know? So it's, uh, we need also to, um, to show that we are the most progressive. We need to have a leader that symbolizes uh, pro progress. Um, I think I'm the perfect candidate for that. Also, uh, not being even born, born, born in the Middle East. I learned both languages in, in Canada. So like, this is how uh, I am relatable. The fact that I'm a lesbian, I'm relatable to a lot of folks uh, around the, the fact that I'm a woman, a young woman also. So I'm like, a lot of people can see themselves in, in who I am, in, in parts of my, my identities. Um, I think I am much more relatable uh, than um, uh, other candidates that are um, from other generations, for example, uh, or that are the same kind of like white um, old uh, man. You understand what I mean? And it's, sorry, it's not ageism or anything like that. I just feel like we, we need representation to inspire ourselves. I, I really believe so. And, um, and that's why I encourage everybody to vote for me as their number one <laughs> or number two or number three. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, just like a, a last question is uh, what, are, what do your next steps look like? You think like in general, like what do you think, what are you going to do politically? What are you inspired by if it's the next few weeks or the next few months or whatever you can share right now? How are you feeling? Uh, I feel um, it depends. It depends how I feel like depending on what I think about, because if I think about things that are negative that happened to me last week or the past two months uh, with the, um, that's just the animosity of the establishment towards my campaign, our campaign, our movement uh, of youth and uh, that believe in a, an eco-socialist revolution that is the watermelon revolution that we've been talking about and like showing up in our branding and everywhere on social media. Um, the fact that we, uh, so sometimes it's negative, but like when I talk to you folks, for example, I feel great. You know, I feel great. I, I feel inspired. I feel like um, we're on the right path. Uh, when I see my volunteers sticking up next to me and like and we're continuing to battle uh, and fight uh, for our movement together, that inspires me. Um, uh, I, I want to fight for this one-time alliance uh, for democratic reform. Uh, depending on the results of this uh, election also, um, um, it depends what's going to happen with the outcome, if I'm going to become the next leader or not. Uh, depending on who wins also, uh, if I'm going to stick uh, and stay within this party or not. Um, so there are many projects, I have many projects in mind, uh, but it's all about the... Um, uh, I'm going to stick and stay, continue being an activist. I think uh, uh, it's important uh, for me to continue in this path. Now, if we do win, um, we need to think very fast about um, uh, having a special general uh, meeting uh, of the Green Party of Canada to implement some, some uh, core policies that must be, um, must be actually 
um, like we, we need to, the membership needs to vote on these new progressive policies that we've been talking about uh, during this election. So that's going to be the, the, like one of the first steps that I'm going to be, uh, that we're going to be working on. Also decentralizing uh, the party uh, as fast as possible also. Uh, it's possible to, to accomplish within our constitution and bylaws. Uh, and we just need, um, we need to convince EDAs in specific regions to, uh, to have a general assembly and vote a, a constitution that will create a uh, regional wing. This will help a lot of empowerment and to decentralize and forget about this, this central office in Ottawa that is completely disconnected from the reality and from the reality on the ground specifically. For, have, for us to have a specific messaging that is uh, applicable to certain regions. This country is huge. We cannot have uh, the, we, yes, the core of our messaging is the same, but uh, depending on who is living in certain writings, et cetera, we, we, like we need to uh, address a certain messaging for each region. Um, that must be done also. So, uh, so yeah, like it's, uh, there's many things ahead and we're super excited and, uh, we are very, very excited. Every time I talk about this and I see it happening, um, I feel like, uh, uh, the sky is the limit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and honestly, um, yeah, shukran, shukran bizarre. So Anna Maharavia. So I, I, it was nice to have a fellow Habibti on Habibti, please. Finally. Uh, thank you so much. Hey, uh, yeah. So it's, it's refreshing. Like you were talking about, I, I don't believe in like, um, the way identity politics has mutated into just like having like Margaret Thatcher means woman, but like there's, then there's identity politics, like Combahee river where it's like, no, it actually matters. And um, this is why it matters. So it's an honor to have another Arab woman on this podcast. Uh, and yeah, we were very inspired. And Ryan's going to also lead out with a thank you. Yeah. So, you know, just thank you so much for your time. We love seeing young progressive people making change the way you are, not afraid to call themselves socialists, not afraid to call themselves abolitionists. And personally, as a law student, I'm inspired to see how lawyers can advance justice, both in and outside of the law. And so thank you for speaking with us. And, you know, we anxiously await the results of the leadership race with you. <laughs> yeah. My fingers. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we, we get everybody uh, uh, to be able to um, uh, have their right to vote. Yeah. You know, I think this yeah. is a, it's very uh, stressful uh, to see this happen after all this work and after all this, uh, um, the courage and people standing up and people fighting for us to continue uh, being part of this race that all of a sudden like their their right to vote uh, is actually taken from them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah. very important to speak up, uh, speak up about this to uh, and expose this as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, to reach as many people as possible online also. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it's been really yeah. a pleasure talking to you. Too. Yeah, you no, too. Yeah, Annie, we should do it again. Like we were like, hey, oh, I have to cover all of this. Yeah. I'm down to, to come back on, on this podcast another time. Great. Great. Honestly, when um when things die down, we can we do like a lot of different topics and themes. Like we're gonna have Leia Gazan on hopefully inshallah again. So um it was just nice, it's refreshing. Like it's, it's like Ryan and I, so we run an abolition reading group. We ran one in the summer and like, um, yeah, there's just not a lot of, a lot of people who are like us who get to do things sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's encouraging to see, uh, it's another thing, you know, um, uh, another reason why I decided to run for this leadership race is to give, um, 
there's a lot of people that are um, immigrants and from racialized groups that don't feel um, necessarily, um, they don't see a space for them in politics, right? Um, very often we come from uh, backgrounds uh, where our, our own parents were living under a dictatorship and that are scared of politics and politicians and they have to de-scare themselves into like Canadian politics. Uh, even though Canadian policy can be actually scary. I saw that happening last week. Yeah, uh, you, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, um, uh, it, it was surprising to me. Um, and maybe I was uh, naive or candid. Uh, and I thought that in Canada, such things don't happen. Uh, they do, mm-hmm. but we, we must fight for our rights. And, um, and I want to encourage uh, and inspire as many people uh, as possible. So it's, it's one of the reasons why I decided to run um, Thank you for this podcast and uh, it's been great. Yeah. Where can people find you? What website, social media? We'll link everything in, in our show notes as well. But if you want to give yourself a little shout out. We're, we're everywhere. Uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, um, uh, TikTok, uh, Facebook. We're, we're everywhere. Our TikTok is brand new, so we don't have as many uh, followers. Uh, but, uh, but yes, uh, there's that. There's the website also. Uh, where we uh, we can see a few things and uh, yeah like we've been uh, having a lot of uh, media coverage uh, for the past few weeks. Um, I felt like throughout this campaign that it gained a lot of momentum and it's been really uh, great and encouraging to see so much support around. So um, uh, and uh, I am super faithful uh, for independent um, uh, media uh, just like yours. Um, I will be uh, participating. Um, it will be a pleasure for me to come back on your podcast in the future. Thank you. We would honor to have you. But yeah, I'm glad um, people can find Miriam and we'll put the links in the show notes as well. But um, yeah, we hope to see more from you. Thank you. Thank you, Nashua. Thank you very much. No problem. These episodes take a small team. Many episodes are hosted by Nashualina Khan solo, political episodes co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande, art and music by Post America, editing and music by Johnny Zapras, production assistance by Raymond Hanano. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at patreon forward slash Habibdi please and find us on Twitter at Habibdi please with a B. Habibdi please.